Yeah, it's a gift to be with you all today. Uh, Let's pray before we open up the scriptures together. Holy Spirit, would you be with us today? Holy Spirit, would you be glorified today? Word of God, Jesus Christ, our Lord, would you speak powerfully today? God the Father, would your will be honored today? To the glory of your name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. You know, sometimes theologians and pastors make people mad. I know that that's a shocker to some of you, uh, but it might not be for what you think. We make people mad for various reasons, but often I find this scenario plays out. Someone comes to me with a question, a legitimate question, a question asked in good faith, expecting a clear and concise answer. And then I look at them, breathe heavily, and say, well, in order to answer that question, I have to answer about five questions before we get to that question. Now, I could give you a lame answer. I could give you an easy answer, but that's not actually going to help you. And it probably actually won't give you a full picture of the question you're asking. So just this past week, somebody asked me about what the reformed view, the reformation view of the end times as compared to dispensationalism. Many of us were raised dispensationalists. Not, not myself, but some of you I know were. And, and uh, I mentioned it in the sermon a few weeks ago. And I said, well, in order to answer that, we're going to have to talk about uh, the nature of the covenants. We're going to have to talk about the relationship between Israel and the church. We're going to have to talk about the impassibility of God. Uh, and we're going to talk about how the whole Bible fits together. Because in order to answer that question, I have to basically answer all of those before we get to the actual distinctions. So I tried my best and probably didn't do a very good job. I had somebody ask me a few years, about last year, who's been at our church since its foundation. He said, yeah, I'm still struggling with our understanding of predestination and free will. And I looked at him and I said, okay, well, I can't answer that question. First, we have to go back and answer who is God What kind of being is God? Is he a being who is the very foundation of existence? And does he have a competitive will with our own? We're going to have to get into a lot of Thomistic metaphysics here, right? And normally there's kind of a look at me like, Tim, are you just dodging this question? And my response is, no, I just want to answer it honestly. And in any part of our lives where we actually know something, we realize that's how life works. In order to answer a question, we have to answer a lot of previous questions, right? I know many of you are in the financial sector. Somebody says, tell me how to retire. Okay. Well, we have a lot of things to talk about before we can talk about that. Or uh, I think about this one, the most complicated reality in in the world or the state of human beings, especially young human beings. And so my wife and I will often look at maybe a child's naughty behavior and we'll go back in time and dissect how we got here. Well, he didn't eat lunch. He refused to eat lunch. He threw it all on the floor. He didn't nap. You know, his temperament, family dynamics, it's cold outside, blah, blah, blah. You all know how it works. You recognize that in order to answer complicated questions, you often have to go to sources that don't seem to have anything to do with the question at hand, but are absolutely necessary to answer first. Well, today we're going to continue in our sermon series on the book of 2 Timothy, and we're going to get to what is probably the most quoted scripture uh, in all of 2 Timothy for sure, but often the most quoted scripture when we're talking about scripture itself. 
2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So today it would make sense we're going to talk about the Holy Scriptures. Now when you're talking about the Holy Scriptures, your mind would immediately say, well, the person we're going to focus on is the Word Himself, the second person of the Trinity, our Lord Jesus Christ who in the life of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Son is also named the Word. And he is the one who continually speaks for God. He spoke in creation, burst forth. The scriptures themselves are his instrument of divine address to his people. It would make sense that if we're going to talk about the Holy Scriptures, we would talk about the Word himself. And he will permeate this entire sermon. But today... When talking about the Holy Scriptures, I want to look at the Holy Spirit. Often we don't think about the centrality and necessity of the Holy Spirit. The one who sanctifies the Scriptures, authors the Scriptures, and empowers the Scriptures. But uh, 2 Timothy 3.16 gives us this beautiful image that he is absolutely central in the formation and in the efficacy of God's Holy Word. It says that all of Scripture is breathed out by God. This word breathed out by God is beautiful. It's theonuestas. Now, some of you know pneuma is the breath of God. That's where we get the word for spirit. Spirit and breath are the same word. So what we see here is theonuestas is the God-breathed Holy Scriptures, which is, could easily be translated just as honestly and just as truthfully, the God-spirited Holy Scriptures. And so today what I want to do is look particularly at the work of the Holy Spirit in the creation and efficacy, meaning effectiveness, of God's Holy Word. Now, before we get to that, and this is going to be the longest sermon intro in history, before we get to that, I know many of you have just a, a thought or a word right on the tip of your tongues. I, we're all thinking it. We all definitely have it in our minds. It's the inseparable operations of the Trinity, right? That's what we were all thinking about. We were thinking, well, Tim, uh, don't forget the inseparable operations of the Trinity. Now, some of you have heard me talk about this before, and some of you haven't. But before we start talking about a unique work of the Trinity, we have to always remember that all of God's actions are one. There is never a point in which the Holy Spirit is doing something and God the Father is, you know, busy, you know, checking his, his email or something, right? God is three in persons, but one in essence, and therefore all of God's actions are singular. And yet each person has, has been uniquely appropriated in action within it. Now, this is all really technical language, but let me, we're going to skip all the technicalities for a second, Okay. And I'm going to give you an analogy. Now, remember, whenever we talk about the Trinity, we are always using analogies. There is no one-for-one -one correlation that we can use. Uh, there is no direct language that we have that says this is going to encapsulate who the Trinity is. It is always analogous, which means it is true, and yet the fullness of who God is is infinitely greater and distinct right? So an analogy might be, you know, 
I love my wife, or a mouse loves cheese, I love my wife, God is love. Those are all analogous to each other, but we can all recognize that my love for my wife is categorically distinct from a mouse's love of cheese. And even more so, the perfect love of the Trinity far surpasses anything my mind can comprehend. Okay? So, let's talk for a moment about an image that we can use when talking about the Word of God and the operations of the Trinity, how God acts towards us. God the Father is always seen as the fountainhead of God's actions. He is the one whose will is carried out. And so let's think about for a moment what occurs when you want to say something. Well, you have a desire to say it, right? You have a center of your being that says, I desire to say the words I'm speaking right now. Well, first it requires an initiation within you, the will. We can think of that as God the Father. It requires an enfleshed uh, reality through which you can speak. We can think about that like God the Son. He is the Word made flesh. So we could think about our vocal cords. Your thoughts can't be made public unless you have a vocal cords to speak them. Let's just take typing and writing out of the equation for a second. But the vocal cords have no power unless they are empowered by breath, which moves through them to speak words forth into the world. This is kind of what we see in John 16, 12 through 14, that words are spoken from the Father through the Son by the Holy Spirit. I still have many things to say to you, this is Jesus talking, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I, uh, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. A single act of God speaking all three members of the Trinity involved. Whenever we speak about God's action, we have to remember this is always how he operates from the Father, through the Son, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so when God speaks to us by his holy word, we have to recognize that it is empowered by the Holy Spirit both through the word himself, Jesus Christ speaking to us, but also it's empowered by the Holy Spirit working within us to actually hear what God says. So if you would, please turn with me to 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 17, where we are going to look at the work of the Holy Spirit who sanctifies scriptures, meaning, meaning making them holy, who authors scriptures, which means making them authoritative, and who operates through scriptures, meaning he forms us by them. So if you would, turn with me to our passage. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I like the ESV on most things. Um, I'm not a, a 
translation, you know, loyalist. Um, I, I think they're fine. Um, and I think that you can trust your translations. So whenever I critique a translation, I always want to first start with, you should really trust your translations. Uh, however, the ESV translated here, a uh, holy grammata writings um, as, you know, sacred writings. But the NIV, I think, uses language that we're much more familiar with, which is holy scriptures. This is where we get the words Holy Scripture from. If you've ever called the Bible the Holy Scriptures, that's the passage where that language derives. But have you ever wondered what you're saying when you say Holy Scriptures? You know, we say words so often they lose their meaning. Uh, but Holy Scriptures indicate that this book, these words are distinct. They're holy. They're sanctified. They're sacred. This is not a book among books. This is not just, you know, a special book in, you know, the Western canon like Homer's Odyssey or War and Peace or the Chronicles of Narnia. It's not like any of those. It is a distinct book. And so what do we mean when we say the word holy? Well, holiness in the scriptures is derived from the work of the Holy Spirit to sanctify. So remember the temple. The Holy Spirit descends upon the temple, makes the temple holy, and whenever he makes something holy, he makes it holy with a purpose, and he gives it life. So the temple is given the purpose and the life of bringing God's presence amidst God's people. And we also see that in our lives, right? So in Romans 8, 9 through 11, we see that the Holy Spirit descends upon God's people, fills God's people for the sake of purifying them, making them holy, and giving them a purpose and a life. Romans 8, 9 through 11. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So what we see here is that the spirit sanctifies believers, makes them holy for the purpose of bringing them into life with God. And he gives them that life by his power. Now, what does the Spirit do when he sanctifies the Holy Scripture? When he descends upon this book and makes it more than a book. When he descends upon this book and purifies it, sanctifies it, and gives it life to act. What kind of life does he give the Holy Scripture? Look at verse 15. From childhood, you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. What work does the Spirit do in the Scriptures? He makes us wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. The ultimate word that the Spirit speaks forth, breathes forth in His Holy Scriptures, is the word of salvation in Christ and in Him alone. We so often go to the Bible um, with questions that the Bible isn't interested in answering. <laughs> 
Um, and I'll let you fill in the blank on what those questions are for you. But the word that the Bible speaks, the word that the Bible never ceases to speak is the word of grace through our Lord Jesus Christ. All of the Old Testament is preparation for this reality. All of the law, if you've ever looked at the law and said, the Holy Spirit, why did you think this was important to write? And you look at all of the requirements of the law and you think, why would any of this ever be important and no one can ever keep it? Exactly. It was to reveal to you that there is absolutely no hope in your own holiness. Absolutely no hope in your own righteousness. That's why it is so utterly unattainable for you to keep in order to drive you to the one who kept it in your place. The one word that the Holy Scriptures says again and again by the power of the Holy Spirit is fix your eyes upon Jesus, the author, the perfecter of our faith, the one who died in our place, making a full atonement for our sins and rose to bring us into everlasting life. This is why, this is why the Scriptures have to be the center of the church. The church doesn't call forth the scriptures. The scriptures call forth the church. God is the one who speaks forth, speaks and his people burst forth. His address gathers his people, galvanizes his people and forms his people. And that's why the word of, the, of God himself has to be the very center of what we do. And we have to actually preach his word. And the only way to actually preach his word is to pre preach Christ and him crucified. This is why we plant churches. This is why we form this church. This is why we give to this church. This is why we serve at this church. This is why we care about ministering to our children in this church is because this is the word of life that the spirit empowers. And this is the word of life that we all need. Christ, him crucified, salvation in him alone. The word that the Spirit never tires of speaking is the word of our Lord Jesus Christ. So first we see that the Spirit sanctifies the Scriptures with a purpose. Now let's look at His authority. Verse 16, all Scripture is breathed out by God. What this tells us is that the Holy Scripture's source ultimately is the Spirit of God, God Himself. 2 Peter 1, 20 through 21 helps clarify this a bit. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. You know, I found it interesting over the years. When you talk to a child about the Bible, what do, you, what do you say normally? God says. God says we ought to love each other. God says we ought to forgive. You focus on the primary author, God. Then as they get a little bit older, we nuance it and we say the Bible says, right? They learn how to read. They recognize this is a book. And so we start to say, well, the Bible says we ought to love one another. The Bible says we ought to worship our Lord Jesus Christ. And then we all become adults. And then something interesting happens. We start to say, Paul says, Peter says, John says, David says. 
And then when you get to seminary, you start to nuance it and you say, the text says. Uh, and then if you get really high into the grammatical analysis, you start talking about ancient Near Eastern religions and their concepts of divinity. Now, is there anything wrong with saying the text says, Paul says, the Bible says, no. Uh, you'll hear me say those things all the time because we believe there is a human author as well as a divine. But what unintentionally happens in the human heart? We are collapsing the authority of God progressively into the imminent frame. We are making it appear. Paul is a human, I am a human. And therefore I have the power to interpret this as I deem fit. And we all do this. But when we recognize fundamentally that the word of God is breathed by God himself, we recognize that it is utterly authoritative in our lives. We do not approach the scripture as a peer. We do not approach the scripture, heaven forbid, as one who analyzes the scripture. The scripture properly understood is God analyzing us. We have learned so much about how to read the Bible and I wanna encourage you, those tools are helpful, but those tools can become haywire when we think we stand in authority over the scripture's analysis rather than recognizing that this is an instrument of divine address whereby the word by the spirit dissects us, analyzes us, puts us under a microscope instead of us putting his word under a microscope. This is why in the Anglican tradition, after we read the scriptures, what do we say? This is the word of the Lord. The Lordship of Christ by his Holy Spirit is revealed in the Holy Scriptures. He does not give us good advice. Rather, he issues us divine commands. And my concern is that the further we drift from the authority of Holy Scripture, the further we drift from the authority of our Lord. And so my question for you is, do the words of God breathed forth by the Spirit still hold the ultimate authority in your life? Or have you placed yourself above them? I think you can have a view of the Holy Scriptures as being authoritative in your life without collapsing into a radical fundamentalist perspective. And yet, if the Holy Scriptures are the authority in your life, what you will ultimately say to the world is the world is not your authority. And you will look odd at times. We are all under someone's authority. We are all repeating narratives to one another. Um, and those narratives either cohere with reality or they don't. <laughs> and what we see in the Holy Scriptures is the ultimate proclamation of what is true, good, and beautiful, proclaimed to us by our true, good, and beautiful Lord, by his Holy Spirit. Now, first, we saw the power of the Spirit sanctified scriptures. Then we looked at the Spirit authored and authoritative scriptures. Now let's look at the Spirit empowered scriptures. Uh, 16 and 17. 
All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. You know, different kinds of things operate in different ways. Well, first, let me say this. Well, yeah, uh, they operate in different ways, right? Um, human beings create and act in the world um, actually in, in, in variable ways, right? We are enfleshed creatures, meaning we tend to operate with our hands. That's how we create. But we are also spirited creatures. So we also create with our words and with our minds. But normally, the power of our words and our minds on physical realities are enacted by our hands, right? Now, I hope if you've listened to me long enough, you know that uh, words are powerful for human beings too. But how God acts, even on physical realities, is through his word. We see in the beginning, he spoke and creation burst forth. He said, let there be light and there was light. He said, let there be and all of these realities came forth. God's mode of creation, the way that he chooses to create is through the power of his word and the ordering of his Holy Spirit. And therefore, we sh it should not surprise us that how God has chosen to form his people throughout the history of the church is through his address, through his scriptures, through his word. And so we see here that the scriptures are, are useful and profitable for teaching. So we know to learn what is true, what is false, the reality of the world for reproof showing us our sinfulness. But he doesn't just show us our sinfulness. The Holy Spirit also offers correction. This idea of correction is he guides us back to where we actually need to be. It is not merely a word of judgment. It's, it's a pathway to show us where we ought to go. For training in righteousness. How can we know what is righteous unless the Lord tells us what is righteous? And then what we see is that it's a... It's a that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This word complete is, is something that I think we intuitively know, but we often miss. We are all longing for completion. We are all longing for wholeness. We are all longing for that piece of the puzzle that we feel to be missing in our lives to be restored to us. We are all longing for shalom. In the Bible, um, shalom is this idea of wholeness, completeness, to be as you are meant to be. And the place where we can go to learn about who we were meant to be, the way we were actually created to exist, the way we were meant to engage the world is the Holy Spirit-empowered scriptures. And I know for many of you, you have sought the scriptures and it feels like I'm not getting answers. Some of you were even maybe drawn to the Anglican tradition because you said, well, discipleship, the totality of discipleship is not revealed in Bible study. That's true. But discipleship doesn't happen outside of the submission to the word either. And my concern is that Anglicanism in particular has drawn so many from Bible traditions who, who felt like they weren't given a complete answer, 
So there was a, a movement towards the sacramental and the mystical. And I want to encourage you, there's a lot of truth to that. We do need the sacrament. We do need the power of the Spirit in every moment of our lives. We do need the inner movement of the Holy Spirit as He guides us. But that can never be untethered from the guiding reality of the Word of God. And so my question for you is, do you still believe the Bible can form you? Or do you think tacitly or through disappointment that you've either outgrown it or just moved on from it? Brothers and sisters, we can never outgrow the power of the word in our lives. And so what voice does the scripture have for you? What practices does it look like for you to seek the Holy Spirit as you seek his formation through the scriptures? Because this is where he chooses to form us. As we look at the power of the Spirit, I could keep going on and on, but for the sake of time, I won't. But we need to remember that these are the words of God sanctified by the Spirit with power to form us, authored by the Spirit and therefore in authority over us, and empowered by the Spirit to form us into the very image of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we thank you for your word. We thank you that by your word, you form us. By your word, you show us the glory of Jesus. By your word, you lead us into life. Spirit, would you open up our hearts, open up our ears, open up our eyes to rightly receive this word that you proclaim. All to the glory of Jesus. Amen. Amen.